Now, this probably won't be the version that you've memorized or that you said with your ball team on the football field. That one is over in Matthew 6. Now, rather than this being an edited version of the other prayer, I think this was given on a different occasion. Uh, the, the, the surroundings, uh, I believe, the first time he taught it was in a, in a totally different context. So it makes sense that these aren't exactly the same prayer, but it also makes sense that the skeleton on which we hang our prayers, the framework, is the same because it's the same teacher. All right, so what we're going to look at is not so much a prayer to be recited, although that's okay, you can recite the Lord's Prayer, but really it is a pattern for prayer. It's a, it's a framework upon which we hang our prayers, and it guides us as we pray to the Lord. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with reciting the prayer, but that's not primarily what it was given for. Jesus was teaching how to pray rather than teaching a prayer to pray. So we'll look piece by piece at this framework. Let's pray that the Lord helps us understand better how to pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to see this picture of prayer. Uh, Lord, if there was ever anyone who would know how to commune correctly with the Father, it would be the Son. So Lord, we thank you for this record. We pray that we would be able to see at least some of the meaningfulness of each of these parts. And Lord, that it would uh, inform the way we pray. Father, I want to pray to you with the appropriate level of intimacy that we see here in, in allowing somebody like me to address you as Father. Lord, then we want to see the reverence of uh, declaring or praying for your name being made holy in the earth. So, Lord, all that we're going to see today, we pray we would learn it and internalize it. And then, Lord, as we pray, we would be able to pray effectively and in a way that honors you in everything we say. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now Jesus, when he prayed, he didn't sound like what they were used to. And they knew that John, when John prayed, he didn't sound like they were used to. And so John taught his disciples how to pray. And so these disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, you don't pray like we do. Will you teach us how to pray? Uh, there was a lot of formulaic kind of praying the same thing, repeating the little patterns of prayer in Jesus' time. Uh, that was, you know, that is the case today in, in much of modern Judaism. You'll see our Catholic friends will have prayers that they pray the same way and they pray them a whole bunch of times. And since the Reformation, you know, we've, um, we pray spontaneously because we're actually communicating with an actual person. And so they came to Jesus and they said, you, you do this different than we've ever heard that we learned growing up. So we need you to teach us how to pray. In verse 2, Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. All right, we're going to stop in verse 2 there for a moment. Uh, Jews in Jesus' day never called God their personal father. They would address him as father of the nation, perhaps. 
They would address him as the father of creation, things like that. So it wasn't unheard of for them to use that term. But to personally address God as father was not done. They just didn't want to presume to individually call him father. Now, it makes sense that Jesus would, right? Because eternally, he is the son of God. So it makes complete sense to us that Jesus would address his father as father. But he was teaching us to do that as well. Now, how is it that we sinful creatures get to call God father or maybe more appropriately, daddy? That's what this... uh, in the, in the Aramaic, he said to him, Abba, which means daddy. It's just a very diminutive little, the first kind of term that a baby would learn to use to call his, his father. So, you know, when children are two, they're not going, oh, father. They're going dada or something like that. And so Jesus is addressing the father intimately, and he's teaching us to do the same. So how is it that we can go to the God of all creation and call him daddy? Well, if these verses don't bless you and get you excited, something's wrong with you. So listen to these verses we're about to look at. Romans eight fourteen through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you, or daughters, for you do not receive the Spirit, you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons of by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he's saying, guys, we are children who have been adopted. And then at the very end, he said, well, if you're really a believer, he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, a lost person can't claim to be an adopted son or daughter of God. But those of us who are truly redeemed, who truly understand the gospel, who have truly repented of our sins, we can indeed call ourselves children of God and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, adoption is an act of grace. You are responsible for your kids, but you are not responsible for other people's kids. Uh, When I was buying my house here in Laurel, there was a problem with uh, the background check, and they came to me, and they said, you have not paid your child support that you were told to pay in Jackson. And I said, I do not have any babies in Jackson. All my Jackson babies are right here in my house. And I had to go and and do a sworn affidavit that that wasn't the right person. Uh, It's funny, when you do a background check, if your name is as uh, common as Steve Jackson, there's going to be a lot of stuff on there. We found that I hadn't paid my bills to the Comcast when I lived in Louisiana. And I told them I didn't live in Louisiana. I didn't have any children in Jackson, so finally we got that straightened out. But you're not responsible for other people's kids, just your kids. But adoption is an act of grace where you take on the responsibility that is not inherently yours. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's one of the ways that God himself chooses to speak of the gospel. When we call God daddy, 
We're doing that because of grace, because he chose to save us, because he chose to adopt us into his family as his son or daughter. Now, that is how we can approach God in prayer. You know, if if um, when my kids were little, all they had to do was call me and I would run to serve them. Now, Stephanie was our first child and no child of mine had ever said, Daddy. And Stephanie was a hard-headed little creature. She, we would put her in bed, and she would scream and scream and scream and scream. And we read these books about parenting. And they said, if your child screams, you leave them there, and they will learn to chill out and go to sleep. Well, that's, we were trying to be good parents, so we would do that. We'd put her in there, and she'd have a fit, and eventually she'd go to sleep. Well, one night, over the little monitor, she said, Dada. And I'm telling you, within about three seconds, I was up the stairs and picking her up and going, how may I serve you, daughter? <laughs> right? Because she called my name for the first time ever. Now, we can go to our daddy with that kind of access. Guys, if you come over to my house at 2 o'clock in the morning and knock on the door, and I get up and get dressed and come to the door, probably with a gun because I don't know who you are, and I open the door and you say, hey, I would like a glass of water, please. I'm going to think you're crazy, and I, I guess I get you a glass of water, but I think you're crazy. But if my little three-year-old or four-year-old comes to me in the middle of the night and says, hey, I'd like a glass of water, guess what? I'm going to get up and get them one. That's the kind of access we have when we pray to God. Now, a great balance to that intimacy that we see is the next phrase. It says, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed just means holy, so we are praying that God's name would be seen and recognized as holy. Our reverence for the holiness of God does not diminish the intimacy that we found just a minute ago in getting to call Him our Father. But it reminds us that intimacy is never license for disrespect. We can never let familiarity cause us to lose sight of God's holiness. That's why this is so great to have Father, holy be your name right together. You know, in the time of Malachi, it was about 400 years before Jesus, the Jews had lost their reverence for God. And that's what the book of Malachi is about, is God saying, hey, you're not treating me as holy, and I'm not going to put up with it. If you remember our study, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago probably, God said that he would rather they close the doors of the temple and not have any worship at all rather than having half-hearted worship. When we sing worship songs together, guys, let me tell you, it's not about whether you love that song. It's about whether God is worthy of worship. And that's how we need to express ourselves. Malachi 1.6 says, As a son honors his father, and a servant his master, if then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Well, he goes on to answer them and says, the way you've despised my name is by offering me half-hearted worship. We are to honor God as holy and to pray that his name will be honored. Um, by the way, guys, I hear Christians saying, um, oh my God, and using Jesus' name as expletives as outbursts of frustration um, or amazement or things like that. 
I, I know that we are made to pick up language. That's how we pick up language. That's how little children pick up language. They hear language and they repeat that language. And I understand that it might be a pattern for you or a habit for you. But let me encourage you, of all the things to use as, a, as an expletive of any kind, I would really not choose God or the name Jesus. That seems to be to not revere his name as holy. So let me encourage you there. If you've fallen into that habit, uh, maybe that's a habit you would want to get out of. John Piper writes this about hallowed be thy name. He says, that is a request not a declaration. So let me pause for my quote for a second. It's not, laying, it's not like a, a polite thing to say, like, God save the queen or something like that. It's actually a request that's being made. Let me finish the quote here. We are not saying, Lord, your name is hallowed. We are saying, Lord, cause your name to be hallowed. That is, cause your word to be believed. Cause your displeasure to be feared. Cause your commandments to be obeyed and cause yourself to be glorified. You hallow the name of God when you trust him, revere him, obey him, and glorify him. So we have seen just that first two phrases that are packed with meaningfulness, packed with a way that we can understand how we're to approach God. We're to approach God with an unparalleled level of intimacy and access, yet keeping in mind the holiness of God when we approach Him. Now, is there anything we can do to make God's name be glorified and revered as it should be? Yes, there is. We can bring men and women into relationship of worship with God. That way, when men and women go from their lost at enmity with God relationship where they're warring against God, when they're saved and reconciled to Him, then there is more and more worship and honor and glory being given to God through those new people who are in his family. So we share the gospel with people. There are people who do not worship God right now. And we can do something about that by taking the message of the gospel. Now we can't make them believe it, but we can take that to them. And the ones, as Acts says, the ones who are appointed to eternal life will believe. And then there will be more worship going on than there was previously. So what do we do about it? We evangelize the lost. That's a great segue into the last phrase in verse 2. It says, your kingdom come. Now do you know when Jesus will return and finish establishing his, his kingdom right here on earth? Do you know when that will be? I don't know when that will be. But I do know that the Bible in Matthew 24, 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, I certainly don't mean that I am able to tell when that will be. I can't quantify when all the nations have heard the gospel. I don't know. That's above my intellect, above my pay grade. But God knows when this will be fulfilled and he says, after that, then we'll set up the kingdom completely, finish setting up the kingdom. Now, do you want God's kingdom to come? Uh, be a faithful witness of the gospel, and you'll be working toward the answer to that prayer that we are to request, which is, thy kingdom come. Pray for and work for the coming of God's kingdom. Now, I mentioned one way we can do that is through evangelism. Another way that we can see more and more of God's will being done on earth is by submitting ourselves 
more and more fully to God. God's kingdom should be visible in our churches and it should be visible in our homes. Now, how will that happen? Well, I would refer you to last week's sermon. (laughs) Last week we talked about how we are to put the kingdom of God before anything else. And the more and more that we do that in our homes and in our church, the more the outside world and we will be able to see the coming of the kingdom. Your house should look like the kingdom of God. This church should look like the kingdom of God. Now we're not perfect yet. We're not We haven't been transformed into the image of Christ yet, but the more and more that we are, the more and more a foretaste of the kingdom we will get at home and in our church. Matthew 6, 33, let me remind you from last week, says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Make the kingdom of God your priority in life so that the reality of the kingdom can be seen in our home and our church. Then help to make it a reality in the world by reconciling people who are far from God to God. Now notice with me that after we have prayed for the things of the kingdom, then we talk to God about our needs. In verse 3, Jesus taught us to pray, Give us each day our daily bread. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel where you're praying for great wealth, a palatial house, exotic cars, and tons of money. He doesn't tell us to pray that way. He says, give us each day our daily bread. We're to pray for the things we actually need, fully expecting God to answer that prayer. Now, I want to add to our understanding of how God provides Uh, by looking at a couple of other scriptures. One is 2 Thessalonians 3.10. It says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, the Bible says willing to work. Willing to work only if you get hired at several million dollars a year to consult for a Ukrainian gas company. That is not what it means. It means if you are not willing to work. It doesn't mean that we'll necessarily have the kind of work that we want, the kind of work that we think we're qualified for. It doesn't mean the salary that we think we ought to get. It just says if you're not willing to work. So when we have people come and they want to talk to us about about financial support, if they want to come and say, hey, we need money. Uh, We need to have enough discernment to look and see if they are not willing to work. It's not our responsibility to help them out, okay? That's not the nicest thing ever to say, I guess, on a Sunday morning. But the truth is that the Bible teaches if you're not willing to work, there's a consequence to that, and that is that you don't eat. But God does care for those who are unable to work, Read with me uh, Psalm 37, 25. This is David writing, and he says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Many times God will provide for those who are destitute and unable to work through the ministry of his church. Now we need to be ready and willing to offer aid to those folks. We just have to have the discernment to figure out who's who. The last verse of this prayer will require a little bit of explanation. Luke eleven four says, And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. 
Now, why is Jesus telling a disciple to pray for forgiveness? Aren't they forgiven? You know, wouldn't a disciple of Jesus already be saved and forgiven? Well, yeah, but a true Christian, a true disciple is eternally secure and is resting in God's forgiveness. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are signed, sealed, delivered, finished, forgiven for all eternity. So if that's true, why is he teaching his disciple to ask for forgiveness? Well, we can be forgiven forensically or, or legally and still sin. And that sin can get in the way of our fellowship with God. You know, do you think King David was saved? Of course he was, right? We know King David was saved. He's a hero of the faith. But listen to this prayer in Psalm 51. And by the way, if you want to have a wonderful model of prayer for repentance, you cannot get better than Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now that does not mean that his mother had some illicit affair. It doesn't mean that he was what we would call an illegitimate child, which there aren't really illegitimate children, just illegitimate parents. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that I had that sinful bent, that sinful nature from birth. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now Paul, not Paul, David is saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Was he saved? Of course he was saved. He's saying he doesn't want to mess up the fellowship. He already has messed up the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And he wants that restored. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, what's going to happen then? Then he's going to have his witness back. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. He's saying, Lord, we need to be restored to that closeness that we used to have before I messed it up with sin so that I can be the witness I'm supposed to be and I can offer you the worship that you are deserving. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. He didn't ask for his salvation to be restored, but the joy of his salvation. Now, why didn't he ask for his salvation to be restored? Because he couldn't lose that. That was delivered to him. That was permanent. But he could lose the joy of his salvation, and he did, 
by committing these egregious sins that we know about. Uh, this kind of story was illustrated really well when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. They gathered for supper, and you know, when they gathered back in that day, they didn't sit on the couch eating takeout, right? They, they reclined at the table. So they would lie down and prop themselves up on an elbow around this little low table. So the, uh, the Last Supper by Da Vinci is not right. They didn't get on one side of a, a table and get photographed, right? They were all lying around the table sharing their dinner. And you don't want to lie down by some dude who has been walking around in sandals in the streets where there's no proper sewage or anything else, right? That's not, that's not appetizing. So you need to wash your feet before dinner, but nobody had done that. I mean, after all, the disciples weren't going to say, we haven't had our feet washed, so I'll take it upon myself to go serve everybody else. They were, in fact, arguing about which one of them was the greatest at this point. Okay, So they weren't about to wash each other's feet. But Jesus decided, hey, there's a need here, and I'm going to use this to teach these guys a lesson. So he gets up, takes off his outer garment, and he starts washing the feet of the disciples. Well, when he comes to Peter, you know, (laughs) Peter's always got some input, and he says, hey, you're not going to wash my feet. And that's a good impulse. I mean, it's the kind of impulse that John the Baptist had. When Jesus came and said, hey, I need to be baptized, and John said, whoa, you want me to baptize you? So I understand why Peter didn't want to be um, Jesus to humble himself and wash his feet. But Jesus said, no, if I don't wash you, then you don't have a part with me. And then he said, well, all right, let's take a bath then. (laughs) And Jesus said, no, you don't need to be bathed because you're clean already, but you need your feet washed. And we see that as a great illustration of, yeah, Peter was saved. The salvation thing was already taken care of. But our sin, as we walk in this nasty, sinful world, our sin can cling to us. And when it does, we need to get that washing. I've told you before that um, when I was hearing testimony of Dr. Rogers' life and ministry, one of the things that uh, the, the worship pastor there said was, Dr. Rogers found it very important to keep a very short list of wrongs with God. That's why God used him so mightily. Because when he was aware of a problem, when he was aware of a sin in his life, he didn't harbor that sin, he didn't excuse that sin. He went to God and confessed and repented of that sin. So that is the kind of thing we're talking about, guys. Forgiveness for a believer is still required to maintain our relationship. Now, it's true that that legally speaking, in the mind of God, every sin I've ever committed or ever will commit has been forgiven in the sacrifice of Jesus. Yet today, if I am angry with my wife, if I do something rude to my children, these things are sins that I need to repent of so that I can have that uh, unhampered fellowship with God. This restored fellowship with God is based on something, though. If we're reading this, we see we can't just say, Hey, God, I'm sorry I messed up in these six ways. Would you forgive me? There's a basis for our forgiveness. It says to be in right relationship with God, we have to forgive others. Now, this is not a weird concept. Look with me at Matthew 5, 23 and 24. 
It says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So what is Jesus teaching there? He's saying before you offer worship, metaphorically speaking, get your feet washed. Okay, Go to God and clean up those sins that have accumulated on you because of your sin in this world. He's saying, look, there's a hampering between you and God and your fellowship. You have grieved the Holy Spirit by your sin. So what you need to do is go take care of that and then come back and offer worship. Or how about this one? Men, you have to treat your wives right or God won't answer your prayers. Did you know that? First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Treat your wife right, or I won't answer your prayers, is what God's saying. Okay? So if we want to be in right relationship with God, you have to forgive people. You're never more like God than when you forgive people. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Let's listen to this story and see how easy, if you think rightly, it will be to forgive people who sin against you. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Peter was being magnanimous there. Uh, the, the Hebrew teachers would say that you should forgive somebody three times because there are various times in the Old Testament that said, God will overlook a thing three times, even four. And so they thought, well, either three or four times is how many times you're supposed to forgive somebody. So Peter was going out of his way to say seven. He said, man, I don't know if it's three or four. Let's just put them together. We'll go with seven. And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So he's saying, look, think about it this way. Let's think about a king who's settling his debts. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Now, there's no way that servant could have paid back 10,000 talents. That is an incalculable sum of money. That's just saying, you know, somebody's a bazillionaire. You know, we, we just say, he's so rich, I can't even count it. That's what is going on here. But the servant fell to his knees and asked for mercy, right? And this benevolent king gave him mercy. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, why was he trying to get paid back? So he could pay the king back? No, his debt was already forgiven. He was just a jerk. <laughs> so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Then he refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. 
Now this is scary. Listen up. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That will make you forgive people real quick, won't it? If you understand what Jesus just said right there. So he says, forgive us our sins because we forgive those who sin against us. Don't pray that prayer if you're not forgiving other people. But not praying the prayer won't help you because we see in this story that God will not be forgiving to you if you're not forgiving to other people. Now again, this is not talking about your salvation. If you are saved and somehow you end up harboring anger towards somebody and unforgiveness, it doesn't mean that the salvation that you have will be taken away from you. But your fellowship with God will never be right as long as you withhold forgiveness from somebody. Finally, the last part of the prayer is, and lead us not into temptation. Now the world, the flesh, and the devil are waiting to trip you up. Or another way to say that is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are out there waiting to get you. You all know because you live with yourselves. We know that we sin and we need to pray for protection. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wanted his disciples to pray and to watch. What did they do? They went to sleep. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus comes to them and says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even after that warning from Jesus, what did they do? They fell asleep. How did that work out? Well, Peter ended up denying Jesus three times before the rooster crowed, right? So it did not work out well because they did not do what they were instructed to do, to watch and pray. They went to sleep instead. So we need to pray for protection from temptation. Now look, God will never tempt us to sin. We can never sit around going, well, God threw this temptation in my way and man, who am I to resist God? <laughs> so that's why I sin. We can't ever blame God. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So whose fault is it when I sin? Mine, because I am lured and tempted by my own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, when we sin, it's because we have something internal that desires that thing that we see. Uh, if you are fishing and you got a bass lure going across the top of the water, you know what's going to make that bass jump up there and get that lure? His internal hunger is what's going to lure him to strike that thing, right? And that's the same way with us. If that bass is full as he can be and happy and sleepy, he's not going to attack that lure because there's nothing in him that desires it right then because he's not hungry. So when we sin, it is because we have an internal desire for the wrong thing. So we should pray for God's protection from that. Now, will God hear and answer your prayers? If you are not his adopted child, absolutely not. The only prayer that he'll hear from someone who is not 
his child is the prayer of repentance and faith where we come to God and we say, I want to place my faith in your son and I repent of my sins. I turn everything over to you. I drop all that I have to come to you. He'll hear that kind of prayer. 